A New York City detective in search of a killer is about to disappear into the night. Is it dangerous? I can't talk about it. How do you know you're going to end up the same person when it's over? Welcome to the season three opener, folks, and boy, do we have a real queer show for you today. Gay leather daddy knife-wielding cheap motel mustachioed murderers, bisexual lipstick ice pick stabbing cocaine fiends, wig-wearing transgender psychiatrist, homosexual diabolical social climbing canoe paddle face bashers, and a man that's making a lady suit out of plus-size women's skin. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Today we tackle the lesbians, gay guys, bisexuals, transgendered, sometimes transvestite, but always murderous LGBT psychopaths. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in play company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from black exploitation to ethnically inclusive street gangs to backwater hick rapists. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Tom. Hey, Slate. Welcome back. Yes, yeah, good to be back. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you. It is good to be back. This was a long break, though. It kind of felt like... It felt longer than the last breaks we've had. Yeah. I, I don't think... know if that's technically true or not, but it felt like it. You're right. I think we both really needed the break. Yeah. A lot, a lot of other stuff was going on, so it helped us. So what have you been up to? Shit. Well, you and I hung out during the summer mm-hmm. periodically. We, we did? W- we went to the beach and had fun. And then, of course, the New York Film Festival. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was a good time. Yeah, so we just finished up at the New York Film Festival. What did we see? We saw the new Almodovar movie, yeah. Julieta. That was really good. It was great. And Almodovar was there with the mm-hmm. whole cast and did a little Q&A, which was really interesting. I loved the movie, I think. I thought it was great. I really was liked yeah. it. And we also saw 20th Century Women. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was funny because we actually ended up getting box seats to that and we sat right behind Annette Pretty Benning. much, yeah, like two rows behind her or so in the box seats. Yeah, yeah that was, it was good. good. She, she's probably an Oscar hopeful, I think. Probably. I like the movie. It wasn't, you know, the best, I think, but I think it's going to move up. I think there's going to get some recognition do, yeah. this year. I feel like you liked that one a little bit more than I did and I really love, I thought Julietta was like one of the best movies I've seen. Yeah, no, I agree. That was really great. I also saw Moonlight a couple days before you got there. Right. Um, I had to sit on the floor to go see it because I was running late, of course. Right. And it was actually pretty comfortable sitting on the floor. I had a really good spot. I didn't have to sit next to anybody. So yeah. Moonlight was wonderful. I can't say enough great things about it, but it's also getting so much press right now. So it makes me really happy. It's a yeah. really quiet, low budget movie that really deserves some attention. So that's good. Awesome. You did something really interesting. Well, yeah, um, actually, it is pretty interesting. So John Carpenter, one of my favorite horror directors, yeah. he, of course, everybody knows this. He does scores for his own movies and they're all electronic synthy type of scores, of course, but he hasn't really made any movies lately. He's been recording albums so now he's been touring around yeah and so he came to dc and so i got a chance to see john carpenter plays music alive in dc it was really cool that's really cool yeah yeah, yeah. interesting so, and they had movies playing in the background while they were playing and it was it was cool and you bought a thing shirt i bought uh, the thing shirt yeah which i wear Where's all the time every day yeah. yeah it's great all right well are you ready hell to, yes I'm ready this, this is it where this is the beginning of season three so yeah. Yep, you are definitely the man for this topic. I'm excited to hear about it. All right. So today we're talking about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender psychopaths in film, but I'm going to set some ground rules as usual. Okay. I'm defining psychopaths as basically murderers, even though that's probably wrong. Psychopaths are technically defined as people with, quote, personality disorder characterized by persistent antisocial behavior, impaired empathy and remorse, and bold, disinhibited, egotistical traits. But today we're talking about movies, and in order to be a psycho in the movies, like, you pretty much have to be a murderer. Yeah, true. There's a few exceptions. We'll talk about those as well, but murderers. Yeah. It wouldn't be right to go without mentioning that there are some pretty famous 
famous real-life LGBT psychopaths. Sure. There was that guy that killed Johnny Versace. Mm -hmm. His name was Andrew Cunanan. You remember that? Yeah. Remember? He was, like, on the lam for a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was on the run. John Wayne Gacy, who dressed like a clown and killed gay guys. Yeah. And then, of course, Jeffrey Dahmer, we talked about in our episode on cannibalism. Right. He ate gay guys. (laughs) Stop laughing. That's not funny. I just, I don't know why. I kind of phrased it in a way that was funny. That was kind of funny. Disregard. So I mentioned this because the first film that dealt with gay male psychopaths was Hitchcock's Rope in 1948. Oh, yeah. And it was based on two real-life gay guys named Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Okay. Leopold and Loeb were two very smart, wealthy, white-privileged college students who used all of that as a reason to commit petty crimes, you know, things like robberies, arsons. They thought that because they were so smart and rich that they could commit the perfect crime, which ended up being the murder and disposal of a 14-year-old boy in 1924. Wow. They were caught and both sentenced to life in prison. It was one of those stories that was on the front page of every newspaper in the country. Even Freud was involved in it. He was supposed to examine them, but he declined it. Clarence Darrow, the guy from the Scopes Monkey Trial and the movie Inherit the Wind, defended them. It was like a huge, huge deal. The movie Rope from 1948 was based on a British play inspired by Leopold and Loeb. The rough plot is two privileged college grads murder a classmate, put his body in a trunk, and then throw a dinner party buffet on top of his casket. Yep. Rope is most famous for its film technique, a very experimental at the time series of takes that makes the film appear as if it's all in real time in one long shot. Right. In that sense, the film is groundbreaking, but it's not really remembered for much else. Like the movie's like not really that great. Yeah. It's kind of a shame that the extremely gay subtext of the film had to be almost completely erased in order to pass the production code, because that's what would have made it like probably a better film. Author Lawrence, one of the screenwriters, was interviewed much later, and he said that they called the gayness it on set and then it was hmm. one of the main reasons that Cary Grant and Montgomery Cliff turned it down although the joke was kind of on Montgomery Cliff because he was like super gay in real life right when I say it the context is Montgomery Cliff didn't want to be associated with it or the two lead characters couldn't say certain phrases that were known to be identified with it right. so that's kind of the way that they dealt with it on set yeah and I just want to say this um, it's still kind of super gay like yeah. I saw I own Rope and I'd never seen it so I, I watched it and I'm like they gay. didn't hide it yeah. at all. I mean, maybe audiences just didn't know what they were seeing or couldn't identify it, but it, if you see Rope, it's gay. It's gay, yeah. Right. Remember the discussion we had before with Mr. Kentley? Yes. Remember we said the lives of inferior beings are, are unimportant? Remember we said moral concepts of good and evil and, and right and wrong don't hold for the intellectually superior? Remember, Rupert? Yes, I remember. Well, that's all we've done. That's all Philip and I have done. He and I have lived what you and I have talked. Three years later, Hitchcock made Strangers on a Train based on the Patricia Highsmith book of the same name. So she comes up a little bit later, so just remember her name. Okay. Strangers on a Train is about two men, Bruno and Guy, who meet on a train and both need someone murdered. They agree that if both of them murder each other's person, neither would get caught since they're strangers and, you know, nobody would have a motive. Yeah. The gay subtext is more with the character of Bruno, who is enamored with Guy. Um, Hitchcock knew how to make audiences uncomfortable, and gay was pretty uncomfortable back then. Sure. He was also very much into highbrow murders and social climbers, which is one of the reasons why Leopold and Loeb were like so interesting. Yeah, of course. I mentioned social climbing because the next film I want to talk about is the 1960 film Purple Noon, which was the French adaptation of The Talented Mr. Ripley. Okay. That was also written by Patricia Highsmith. The actual movie is only loosely based on the book, and it's pretty free of gay subtext, so I probably wouldn't have even mentioned it except for the 1999 remake with Jude Law and Matt Damon is so gay that they kind of even each other out. Right. Rough plot for both. Tom Ripley is paid by a very wealthy father to go to Italy and convince his son, named Dickie, <laughs> of course, gay, right. to go back to America and stop spending all the family's money. Ripley becomes obsessed with Dickie, both because his life is so great and also because he's super hot in both movies. He kills Dickie and steals his identity. In Purple Noon, Dickie's body is found, and it's implied that Ripley is found out. In the 1999 version of the movie, Ripley gets away with everything. They're both terrific adaptations, although I think I give the edge to the 1999 version just because it's so diabolical and 
also. And hot. super gay. It's hot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to move past Leopold and Loeb, but this Hitchcock, Patricia Highsmith, Leopold and Loeb triangle continues even now. There was a movie in 1959 called Compulsion, which was about Leopold and Loeb. The Sandra Bullock dud murder by numbers in 2002. With oh, yeah. Ryan Gosling and Michael Pitt playing the educated and well-off murderers. Ryan Gosling was in that? He was. Oh. Michael Pitt went on to do a remake of Funny Games in 2007, oh, yeah. which mm. was a shot-for-shot remake of the Austrian film right. by Michael Haneke. Yeah. Um, it clearly inspired by Leopold and Loeb. There was even an indie gay movie from 1992 called Swoon, which was a period piece retelling of Leopold Loeb. Like, it's a, I think you get the point. Yeah, but yeah, like, it was lot. really a thing. Really, yeah. yeah, it keeps coming back around. And then, of course, Psycho came out in 1960 and created the template for LGBT shockers for many years to come. Norman Bates was technically a schizophrenic, so he doesn't really meet the criteria here. Sure. Norman was pretty obviously straight, and presumably so was his mother. So even though he dressed like her when he was having an episode, this doesn't make him gay, bisexual, or transgender. Right. So I'm going to move on to William Castle's Homicidal from 1961. But you did talk about it in... William Castle. The William Castle. Yeah. yeah it's a, long story short, a woman named Emily keeps doing all this crazy shit, including murdering people. And it's revealed that Emily is a man named Warren. This is a little <laughs> complicated, but it's actually Warren was really a girl. So the plot was Warren's father, Warren, Emily's father, yeah. wanted a boy. And when she was born a girl, they were like, we have to pretend like this is a boy or the father will like disown disown the girl. I mean, it's right. a, it's a, it's I've it's, heard of this basic plot elsewhere. Right. But yeah, that's so fine. they raised Emily as Warren. And then when Emily, Emily Warren's father died, there was a clause in the will that would have denied him his inheritance. So he created the character Emily in order to kill off everybody that knew that he was actually a girl. I can't, can't even keep it straight right. myself. But he would collect the money as Warren and then, I guess, go on to live as Emily. I don't know. Whatever. Right, right. Now, this is the birth certificate of Warren Webster. The sex presented as male. Helga Svensson actually delivered a girl. In order for Warren to continue the masquerade successfully, he had to get rid of three people. And so, Warren created Emily a homicidal maniac who did his killing for him. So that takes us to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 1970. Valley of the Dolls was a 1967 book-turned-movie about women that depend on pills like little girls depend on dolls. Sure. It was a huge critical flop, but it made a fortune and even got Roman Polanski's wife, newcomer Sharon Tate, a Golden Globe nomination. Oh, wow. Right before the Manson family murdered. Murder, yeah. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was originally supposed to be a sequel, but all proposed scripts were rejected and for reasons unclear to any one 1960s boob movie king Russ Meyer and film critic Roger Ebert wrote a script <laughs> that as soon as they saw it they rushed it into production that's crazy have you seen this I have not and I know that you watched it recently for this podcast yeah. but no did you buy it or did you just rent it I got it through Netflix DVD is it on Criterion now living. it is it was just released oh, I yeah. posted on the slum site okay so Russ Meyer said that it was supposed to simultaneously this is quote simultaneously be a satire a serious melodrama a rock musical, a comedy, a violent exploitation picture, a skin flick, and a moralistic expose of what the opening crawl called, quote, the oft-times nightmarish world of show business. It's bonkers, but like in yeah. a really confusing way. Like when you watch something like Grindhouse, yeah. you know, you're like, oh, I get it. They are clearly making a movie that is inspired by, I understand what I'm watching right, right now. And you, what it's paying homage to. Right. You never right. understand in any way what Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is wow, trying really? to do in any form. It's it's one of those movies where you're just like, was everyone just drunk this whole time? Probably. When, what year was it again? 1970. Shit was so fucking weird. Like, you know, when they try to be artsy or or, or whatever. A lot of those movies are just so bonked out. Like everybody did LSD and was drunk. Yeah, when but they like Roger this. Ebert wasn't doing LSD on the set of this. I think I it hope was he ju- was. Well, maybe so. Yeah. Let's just say he was. I'm, he was. He had. To, totally, he wrote it. He was so. a drug fiend. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you the plot because I don't really know if there is one. But the climax comes as one of the characters, Z-Man, who you think is a pretty flamboyant gay guy, turns out to be a woman. To show you, he p- just pulls out his breasts and chops the head off of a guy in a g-string before murdering 
killing four other people and dying in the process. The thing that's really complicated about this is like, I'm sure it's supposed to be an elaborate joke, but like, why would you pretend to be a flamboyant gay guy instead of a woman? Right. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's an odd choice. If you were like, oh, I, I'm a woman with a man's body yeah. trapped inside. Why would you choose a flamboyantly gay guy? Just, <laughs> I'm uh, at a loss. I blame dope fiend Roger Ebert for this. It's because he was so cracked out that whole time because <laughs> he, he was such it. a serious drug addict. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's talk about lesbians for a minute. Oh, please, let's. The first trace I could find of a lesbian psychopath goes back to Hitchcock in Rebecca from 1940. Yeah. Rebecca is one of his best earlier films, and there isn't a murderer psychopath, but the character Mrs. Danvers burns down a house, so that's kind of close-ish. Yeah. In one of the scenes, she caresses dead Rebecca's lingerie and says, Did you ever, ever seen anything so delicate? Look, <laughs> you, can you can see, see my hand. hand through it. I don't think that heterosexual women caress each other's underpants. Not that I'm aware of, yeah. but I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. One of the defining genres in exploitation film came in the 70s with the popularity of women in prison films. Oh, yeah. This genre should get its own episode, so I'm going to gloss over it. Okay. But women in prison films actually got their start in the 50s with the movie Caged in 1950. Did you mm-hmm. know this? Yeah, and actually talk about some version of this coming up. Oh, good. In another episode. I didn't know this. So Caged is about a young woman who goes to jail and all of the things that happened inside of the jail it was pretty ballsy for the time and actually got a few Oscar nominations it's obviously extremely tame when it comes to lesbian stuff but it's there right fun fact Betty Davis was actually offered the movie first but she said she quote didn't want to be in a dyke film <laughs> she did she said that yeah she's such a bitch what a she is my bitch. favorite human being on the planet <laughs> terrible in the late 60s and throughout most of the 70s women in prison films were pumped out of numerous countries because they were cheap to produce yeah and a great way of showing a lot of naked women and of course that spelled box office yeah of course and of course within these movies were always lesbian characters some of them good some of them bad the villain was sometimes a male or sometimes a female warden who was a sadistic lesbian that wanted to beat up kill torture rape the prisoners but some of the prisoners were lesbians as well and across the genre there are varying degrees of psychotic behavior yeah one of the most notable examples was Chained Heat from 1983 <laughs> starring a young Linda Blair oh I love yes Chain Heat it was a mess when it came to lesbian and mm-hmm. was protested by LGBT rights groups. And while it made a little money, it also got nominated for a bunch of Razzies. Obviously, the women in prison movies made a bunch of stars, you know, most notably Pam Greer, who oh, yeah. sometimes played a lesbian and influenced the play and movie Chicago, Orange is the New Black, and of course, the classic Medea Goes to Jail. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to skim over the rest of the 70s because I really want to get to the 80s and 90s. But first, Villain from 1971, starring Richard Burton, was mm-hmm. a British mob movie where Richard Burton was bisexual. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. That. that is interesting. Deliverance from 1972 has the squeal like a piggy rape scene. Yeah, it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, I'm not going to classify that really as gay. Like, that was no. kind of like an act of violence, really. Yeah, yeah. A Reflection of Fear, also in 1972, had a child that was born one sex and was living as another, but also a wacko kind of a la straitjacket. Yeah. There's so much crazy shit in the Rocky Horror Picture Show from 1975 that yes. it's hard to pinpoint anything in particular. True. But the bisexual transvestite Frankenfurter does kill Meatloaf's character Eddie and eats dinner on his casket a la rope. So technically that fits the criteria. Yeah. Salo or 120 Days of Sodom oh, from 1975. Yeah. We talked about that in PM Poop, but I never want to talk about it again. Yeah, I agree. And Looking for Mr. Goodbar in 1977, where a sexually confused but at least bisexual Tom Berenger murders Diane Keaton because he can't get an erection. I forgot all about that movie. Yeah. yeah. Classic Tom Berenger. Thanks for existing. Here's my question for going forward. Mm -hmm. Because clearly, I know you're going to talk about some movies where there was a lot of outrage. But up to now, like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or anything in the 70s, was there any actual, like, you know, backlash with the gay community with these movies? I'm really glad you're setting me up for the entire next segment of of this uh, podcast. We planned this shit. I'm telling you, we're good at that. 1980 was a huge year for dark, low budget, murderous gay and trans characters with four pretty big deal movies, almost all cult classics now. The lesser-known first film, Windows, was about a woman who kept getting attacked by men, but as it turns out, an older lesbian woman neighbor was lesbian-obsessed with her and planned the attacks for some reason. 
No one dies, but I wanted to bring this up because there's a scene where a girl and a guy are watching an old black and white film in their apartment. I googled what the movie was. Yeah. It's actually now Voyager starring Betty Davis. Hmm. So Betty Davis ended up being in a dyke film. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Take that, Betty Davis, you yeah, bitch. bitch. Love you. I love you. <laughs> the second 1980 LGBT movie is Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. Oh, yeah. Have you seen this one? Oh, God, yes, I've seen this movie. I'd never seen it before. Really? I started researching. Yeah. Rough plot. A MILF in New York City isn't being sexually fulfilled by her husband, and so she goes to her therapist to talk and slash seduce him. He refuses her, but she meets a man at a museum and goes home with them, and they do it. She gets on the elevator where a blonde woman with sunglasses murders her and a high-priced hooker sees. The rest of the movie is a bit of a cat and mouse game, and it's kind of a hot mess of stereotypes, but it's a fun, innocent watch at this point. And spoiler, you'll know this in two seconds. The blonde woman is not a woman. Yeah, not even. All right. What do you think? Okay. I'm old as fuck, as you know. And when I was a young lad, we had cable. And of course, we had the old school cable boxes, which were just like five buttons on them. But that's. Sure. So this came on Movie Channel all the time. That's the. Yeah, we didn't have HBO. We had the Movie Channel. This came on all the time, along with like Stripes and other movies that I was way too young to see at the time, but right. watched them. So I remember seeing Dressed to Kill as a kid. Now, this movie starts off with like an explicit sex scene, yeah. goes into murder very quickly, and then, of course, has all the LGBT issues and the psychopath stuff. So as, you know, I was like 10 uh-huh. when I first saw this movie. Oof. So I was like, what the fuck, you know? Yeah. So I watched it again because I knew you were doing this podcast, and it, it, it's fucking bonkers. It's for fun, the most though. Part, but it is it's fun. It's a fun movie. And it is probably the most De Palma ripoff Hitchcocky movie that he's ever done. Absolutely. Which he, 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 most of his movies have some sort of Hitchcockian type of element. But there's a scene where the woman who, I guess, is looking to fuck around her husband yep. has this flirtatious thing in a museum yep. that's totally, um, all it has is the music in the background. It's all nonverbal, but it's really well done. It's gorgeous. It's, it's gorgeously done. Yeah. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Suspenseful. It was yeah. really, really well so done. So it's a good movie. It really is a solid movie, but it is so fucking ridiculous, too, at the same time. Yeah. And, and so it's funny you should bring up the Hitchcock thing. I looked it up. So Hitchcock was asked about what he thought about Dress to Kill being an homage to his movies. He responded, more like fromage. Which is the <laughs> French word for cheese. Yeah. I love you, Hitchcock. You're yeah, so he's funny. great. Um, you bitch, Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> you love bitch. You and Betty Davis. Yeah, love you, though. If you want to get in the middle of an argument, there's a really smart and interesting debate on whether Dress to Kill is transphobic or just a complete knockoff of Psycho. If you look on the Criterion website, like in the comments, there's this whole argument back and forth. It's really, really interesting. That is cool. Yeah. I normally hate comments on the internet about just dumb sure. trolls being awful, but right. these are really educated people having an educated conversation on the Criterion website. I was like, this is Sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. The third 1980 film was the notorious, confusing, William Friedkin-directed film Cruising, starring Al Pacino. I was waiting for you to get to this one. Yep. What he experiences, what he discovers, will change his life forever. Al Pacino, Cruising. Cruising is one of real-life Hollywood's best mysteries because, A, why did Friedkin think a movie about a gay murderer who kills guys he picks up in a sex club leather bar was a great follow-up to The Exorcist and The French Connection? B, why did Al Pacino think this was a good idea? And C, the biggest mystery, what was in the nearly 40 minutes that Friedkin cut out of it to get an R rating? And more importantly, where did the footage go? Cruising is about a cop who goes undercover into the deep world of pre-AIDS New York City to find a murderer who picks up gay guys in leather bars and, of course, kills them. I've seen Cruising a few times, and it isn't really that bad of a movie, all in all, but I can certainly see why the gay community railed against it. Right. 1980s gay was a lot different than 2016 gay. And when the LGBT community found out that Friedkin was making a film about not only the leather underground community, which is not really the best representation of gay life, and that there were, spoiler, multiple murderers within the gay community, they tried to sabotage the production of it. The LGBT crowd in New York was already riled up by the time Cruising started filming in the summer of 1979. If you know anything about gay history, then you probably know Anita Bryant, the former Oklahoma pageant winner and singer who used her B-list celebrity status to found Save Our Children, a nonprofit group focused around passing anti-LGBT discrimination cases. Mm -hmm. She called gays pedophiles and perverts and focused her message around them recruiting children since they couldn't have any of their own. To further complicate things, she was a spokesperson for Florida Orange Juice, and so the in thing became to ban orange juice. 
<laughs> gay bars across the country, but especially in New York, stopped serving screwdrivers and replaced them with the Anita Bryant, which was vodka and apple juice. That sounds not bad, actually. No, it doesn't sound bad. But vodka anything doesn't sound bad. So The band was so successful that Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, Dick Clark, Mary Tyler Moore, and Jane Fonda, just to name a few, were outspoken OJ banners. Florida OJ eventually dropped Anita Bryan as a spokesperson. So we're really in a time where protesting brought action. Right. And while some members of the LGBT community and a couple gay bars lended their support, reportedly thousands of people turned out during the filming of cruising to protest so this kind of went beyond just let's protest a movie after it was already made this was like we need to sabotage the production of this movie wow that's amazing yeah they pointed mirrors from their apartments into the set ruining the lighting blasted music and blew whistles during takes and threw bottles at the production crew damn so wow. it really did affect the film the production the that's crazy well, despite picketing graffiti and vandalism the movie entitled cruising was completed and it will be shown in san francisco this weekend the theme is the homosexual a lifestyle, but more specifically, however, it's about a series of brutal murders of gays. The gay community has protested, wanting no showing at all of that film. The film's distributors have other ideas. Randy Shandabill has the story. No one, not even the filmmakers, deny that Cruising is a brutally violent movie. The difference is that this time around, gays are the victims of the violence. And gays are worried that it will give people dangerous ideas. The Ghirardelli Theater in San Francisco was scheduled to show Cruising, but last month, Vandals sprayed graffiti on marquees and broke windows. As a result, Ghirardelli management dropped the film. Cruising actually made some money and wasn't seen as a complete disaster. I've watched extensive interviews with William Friedkin about the process, and he's cordial about the homophobic tone question. Sure. He seems to understand why it was controversial, but maybe still thinks that he's above it. He maintains numerous times that the film does not pass judgment on the gay and leather lifestyle, which it doesn't. Yeah. However, 99% of the cast are one-dimensional leather daddies with knives and poppers and lubed up fists. There's also a weird choice <laughs> yeah. to show almost every murder victim face down, like like ass up, basically, face down, whether in the morgue, tied to a bed, or in photos. Again, not casting judgment, but if you didn't know any better, gay people seem to basically look like butt-rape murder monsters, kind of. <laughs> Jesus. Friedkin gives the impression that while he knows why people were mad, he thinks his stardom and artistic expression about a gay exploitation murder thriller was more important than the LGBT climate at the time. And he's right. He should be able to make whatever movie he wants. Yeah. And likewise, people should use their power to protest and fuck it up if it's that important, which it was. Yeah. I'm really glad cruising exists, but I bet I would have been pretty pissed in 1980 if a very powerful Oscar-winning director used his artistic freedom to make a movie that caused heterosexual audiences to think that cruising was a fair depiction of gays. I got something to add to that. Great. You mentioned why would someone make this movie. In 79, he was just coming off of Sorcerer. Mm -hmm. Now, Sorcerer, which is a great movie, is a remake of Wages of Fear. It was a big budget, huge adventure movie that had Roy Scheider in it and a bunch of other people. And filmed on location, and it was a troubled production. It went over budget, and it was this huge flop. It came out in 77, either a week before or a week after Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And its box office totally got tanked. He lost a lot of money on it. Yeah. Even though they got good reviews, people were confused about it because the name Sorcerer had nothing to do with sorcery, yeah, but they assumed right. it was like some sort of follow-up to The Exorcist. And it fucked him up because, I mean, lost a lot of money on it. It was his first big failure. And I think maybe he was trying to find another project that was either smaller, that's sensationalistic, to to try to sure. get some... Well, and character-driven. He did. It's very different. And Friedkin's a fucking nut anyway. He really is crazy. I've watched all of the interviews with him, and I'm like, I'm glad you're around, Yeah, but you're also a little nuts. You're crazy old man. Yeah. The last 1980 LGBT movie is about a transgender murderer, mm -hmm. and that murderer would be Angela from Sleepaway Camp. Oh, <laughs> yay. Yeah. Our favorite movie to talk about. Yeah, oh, I love this movie. So, of course, you remember that the very end scene was... Oh, yeah. Angela, who you find out is the murderer at the end, mm -hmm. but then you also find out that she was being raised as a girl. She was actually a boy. Yeah. And she's standing butt naked <laughs> after she's murdered this kid. And they find out, and they're like, oh my God, she's a boy. Right. And I think we decided, we talked about this. The way that they did the scene was they basically got a college student drunk. And he's male. like 21. He was of age, right. but he was a very small But he was a framed. small framed guy. They made an Angela head. Was that like a happened? mask head? Yeah. So they head. made a head. They put it on him, and then they shot that scene. Yeah, and they pulled back from that, and you, the reveal was yeah, he had a penis. Yeah. 
And it's funny because for such a low budget movie, that is a shocking ending that still goes down in history as being the like, what the fuck type of movies. Yeah. And that movie is a shocking ending to a movie that has some fairly shocking scenes all the way throughout. Yeah. I love it. It's just one of my favorite movies of all time. I love it. The rest of the 80s would see fewer LGBT psychopaths, and that was mainly because, you know, that was around the time that AIDS hit, and it just became out of fashion. A few exceptions, The Hunger from 1983 had Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon in a lesbian bisexual vampire movie. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, there's Nightmare on Elm Street 2 from 1985. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about it uh, in one one episode, and you were like, oh, it's so gay. And I was like, I haven't seen it in forever. So I watched it recently. Yeah. It's actually streaming on Netflix. Yeah. That movie is so gay. Yeah. Like, that's the gayest movie I've ever seen. It's and I've pretty, seen a lot of gay-ass movies. It's pretty yeah. gay, yeah. I did a little bit of research on it, and they actually... So, the, you know, the lead character in that movie is gay. Right. And I guess people knew it at the time, but he was still trying to, you know, be not gay as a Hollywood actor. Sure. In the movie, instead of it just being like, oh, I go to sleep and then Freddy Krueger kills people, it's like he is Freddy Krueger in a lot of the movie. Like he keeps looking and he's got the claw hand on. Right. And like he's participating in these murders. And then do you remember the coach? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of butt stuff too. Like there's a lot of like jock strapping and butt smacking and butt bumping. The overarching theme is basically he's coming out as Freddy Krueger. Right, yeah. And he's ashamed of the and is scared of that part of him and Freddy's kind of that part of him. So the, that's that whole subtext throughout the whole movie. Right. But then there's the butt stuff and of it's course the stuff. coach, which I can't wait for you to talk about. So the coach is gay and goes to leather bars. So yep. the main character, he goes to the leather bar and sees the coach there. This is in a dream. Mm-hmm. Then somehow they end up in the locker room. The coach is naked, chained to a wall, and then towels like how do you say that they're like anamorphic like they yeah they, they kind of move on their own towels move on their own and just smack his butt like whip him like whip his butt and like <laughs> and you're just like this is so gay like this is the gayest leather daddy like yeah. so stereotypical and you're just like what does this have to do with Freddy Krueger I'm so confused it was so yeah. weird somebody greenlit this as a part of this franchise oh yeah it's so weird he has a dance scene too that's also that's one of the funny scenes where he's like dancing around singing I don't know sisters are doing it for themselves or something <laughs> and he's like he butt bumps the drawer to like oh, close yeah. the door and he's like dancing around with like his sunglasses and yeah, in a wig and high heels and, and it's not really but tennis kind racket of, or something yeah yeah so gay it was yeah and not weird. a good movie at all. Like no, not no, no. scary. It's a, not no, it's the worst of the franchise. It's really one terrible. of the worst. Probably the mothership of the LGBT psychopaths is James Gum or Buffalo Bill from 1991 Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. It's also probably the most controversial. Mm-hmm. I'm going to totally spoiler Silence of the Lambs because come on. Like yeah, everyone is seeing fucking that 25 years ago. Yeah. Jodie Foster is a CIA agent. No, in the, she's oh, a FBI. FBI. Trainee. Sorry. I always get that confused, yeah. but I know that you'll correct me. Right. She visits cannibal psychiatrist prisoner Hannibal Lecter to help catch a serial killer that's on the prowl. It turns out to be a man who's been rejected by several gender reassignment clinics for psychological reasons. And so he's making a suit out of murdered women's skin so he can slip into it and become a woman, which Mm -hmm. is practical. Yeah. Obviously, this did... Real quick, if he made an actual skin suit out of a woman... Like, wouldn't you be able to tell that it was like... I don't think he ever wanted to, like, wear it out on the town. Oh. I think he just could lounge around the house in his lady suit, you know. You didn't think he was going to, like... I really didn't think he was going to walk around I guess I was He would have looked like Leatherface if he did that. That's what I was thinking, but I guess you and I were thinking of it differently. I was kind of like, he was like, I want to go out and go to the... So if he had gotten away with it, and he'd have gone out and had, like, a five-star dining with his woman suit on. I guess I'd never even thought about that. I like that he wasn't going to wear it out. Okay, good. Well, that makes more sense. Okay, yeah, I like that. Obviously, this character didn't really go over very well with the transgender community. And it further complicated matters that for a relatively low-budget thriller, it gained huge word of mouth, made a fortune, and ended up sweeping the Oscars, winning Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Actor, and Actress, making it one of the only three films to ever win all five in the top categories. I mean, I remember when this movie came out, but this Silence of Limbs was a huge surprise. This was was just kind of a low, kind of a regular movie movie like a thriller that came out yes but also the book was hugely successful right, too. right 
and I'm trying to remember if the movie made the book more successful, if the book was successful enough on its own that the movie just jumped on back of it. I, from what I understand, this was kind of like the the book was a success and they were like, let's make a movie out of it just like we do every single day. But that it opened up like third or fourth. But then as people were seeing it, they were like, oh my God, this movie is really good. And it is. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a terrific it's a film. It's really a perfectly made film. Yeah, I agree. Also, one thing to note, it's the only Oscar winner that had a jizz scene. Oh, yeah. So had to I, bring that up. You love to bring that up, especially in a dinner a dinner conversation. Right. Yeah, it's lovely. The idea of transformation. Get it? Get it? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that's great. Shouldn't be allowed to make jokes. Is baked throughout the film, including a subplot involving certain types of caterpillars that turn into butterflies as part of their transformation. Yep. This is no coincidence. And director Jonathan Demi maintains that he intended Buffalo Bill to be trying to make a psychopathic transformation, not that he was a psychotic transsexual. But a lot of that was lost in translation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, there God. were a slew of protests across the country, although mostly by people who hadn't seen the movie. Once people saw it, unlike Cruising, it was such an obviously bonkers town movie with so many just well-crafted characters, including the at least bisexual Hannibal Lecter. It was pretty clear that this was like fiction. Like right. no one saw this movie and was like, that's the way people no. are, you know, not to make light of it. But one of the old ass stupid arguments against LGBT rights is that we are sending kids a message that being gay is something that they are welcome to be a part of. No kid would want any part of anything going on in silence. Of the no, lambs. not at all. Again, not the best way transgendered people and gay men would like to be remembered, but a good specimen of if your movie is good, then the stereotypes aren't as evident. You know. I feel like also the crazy psycho part totally trumped the gay part. Like he was just so nuts that that's not the first thing I thought of was, oh, he's gay and crazy. I just thought he was crazy and wanted to make a suit more than anything else. Exactly. Like you would never be like, oh, because he's a gay man, yeah. he wants to murder women and make skin suits out of them yeah, and then I wear them that out on a night on the town. Yeah. Yeah, no. The popularity of Silence of the Lambs paved the way for a bunch of films in the early 90s that had LGBT psychopath plots or subplots. There was definitely a weird LGBT subplot in Oliver Stone's JFK from 1991. Yeah. It was so bad, apparently, that GLAAD, that's Gays and Lesbians Against Defamation, contacted Oliver Stone before the movie was finished. Apparently, he made some tweaks and the movie kind of went off without a hitch. But right. There's still a little bit of there. They were kind of like, uh, 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 and he was like, oh, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. My bad. 1992 was a pretty crazy year for LGBT thrillers, and a lot of those notions would carry out until about 1997. Let's start with Basic Instinct from 1992. Oh, let's. She knows things about me that I only told you. How's it feel to kill someone? You tell me. I think you got too close to the flame. I think you liked it. You're in over your head. Basic Instinct was Paul Verhoeven's kind of retelling of his 1983 Dutch film, The Fourth Man, where in addition to some murdering and lying, there was a bisexual plot device. We've talked about it a few times in History of Female Nudity and the Rise and Fall of NC-17, but Mm -hmm. we never really talked about the LGBT issues, which were really controversial back in the day. Yeah. I remember reading Entertainment Weekly when it came out, and it said, Basic Instinct has something to offend everyone. Yeah, Which I thought was a great line. LGBT audiences actually caught wind of it while it was being filmed and similar to cruising protested the filming on release. There were frequent demonstrations where protest signs urged people not to go and even spoil the ending. So let's talk about Basic Instinct for a second. I'll just do a quick plot line. A former rich rock star is murdered during sex with an ice pick. His girlfriend, or rather the girl he's fucking Sharon Stone, is the prime suspect. And she's written a book where the exact same thing happens. Right. She's a crime novelist, and that was one of her books she was writing. Right. Or written. So Michael Douglas, the detective, gets all wrapped up in it, of course, and starts sleeping with her. It's soon revealed that she's bisexual, has a girlfriend named Roxy that attempts to murder Michael Douglas, is also sleeping with a woman who killed her whole family, and once slept with a woman in college that she has to get a restraining order against, and who also may have murdered his partner, but may have been framed, but is also kind of crazy. We never get a full-on answer. But at the end, Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone are doing it, and the camera slowly pans down to reveal an ice pick. 
Yep. I should mention first, I want to discuss this, but everyone in Basic Instinct is a monster. Yeah, everyone's terrible. Michael Douglas only knows how to talk to women if he aggressively grabs them and yells in their face, mm-hmm. which I feel like women don't like that. Oh, they don't? Like, that's not... I mean, I don't know. Everyone that he does it to has sex with him, now. so maybe they do. Yeah. He practically butt rapes his ex-girlfriend and is just kind of generally an erratic former cokehead alcoholic dick who has shot numerous unarmed people. Right, he's terrible. Doesn't he have the nickname Shooter? They're like, hey, Shooter, hey, because shooter. he keeps shooting unarmed anyone's people. anyone's rights lately? Yeah. It's like... <laughs> yeah, he's a dick. Right. But in the movie, he's the good guy because at least he's not bisexual. <laughs> like, he even says to Roxy, the character, he's like... He calls her Rocky. And he's like, let me ask you something, Rocky. Man to man. Like, what a dick. What a you're dick. You're horrible. Yeah, you're All awful. Right. What do you think? Basic instinct. I feel like Roxy's the most sympathetic one in the whole, and she's kind of a monster too, yeah. but she's least monstrous of all of those people. It's, I mean, everyone is everyone's horrible. Terrible. Horrible people. It's, it's an incredibly batshit crazy, full-on Verhoeven movie. Yeah. I hadn't seen it in years, and so I watched it. I think it's streaming on Netflix as well. I guess I was just surprised by how literal so many things were. And it was yeah. really two things. One of them was smoking, and the other one was cocaine. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, do you do you want a cigarette? I don't smoke. Well, do you? Well, why don't you try this cigarette? No, I told you. Well, okay, I'll have one cigarette. Oh, would you like a cigarette? Like, everybody smokes every in smokes every in scene in the entire movie. It's yeah. just like cigarette, cigarettes. And then the other thing is like how literal they are with cocaine. Right. They're like, do you like cocaine? No, I don't use cocaine. I used to use it, but I don't do it anymore. Well, I like cocaine. Well, do you want to do some cocaine? I just mm-hmm. told you. Well, I'll try a little bit of cocaine. Everyone's right. doing cocaine all the time, but incessantly talking about the cocaine, right. which is what people that do cocaine don't do. Right. Like, you're never just like, hey, everybody, I love doing cocaine. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not the way. Hi, that... are you holding cocaine? Yeah, I'd like to do some cocaine in the bathroom. Would you like to join me? Yeah. It's really, it was just so literal in those two senses. I was just like, wow. Yeah. And of course, also, everyone that's bisexual is hor- is a horrible, horrible person. No, they're, they're dreadful. But also, it was written by Esther Haas. Joe Esther Joe Haas, Haas, yeah. Who probably wrote it that way because he probably goes out and asks for cocaine that very way. He probably right. like, does anyone have cocaine? Because right. I'm a screenwriter and I just got paid a million dollars for this or however much he got paid for that movie. And he's a master of trash, too. Mm-hmm. So it is such a trashy, but I'd, I'd love that movie. It's real fun. It's real fun. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's like it's I dreadful, really enjoyed the experience right. of watching it again i mean it's a little bit of a moment frozen in time but it's real fun i'm willing to argue that because of that movie anyone who is crazy from then on or some sort of evil mastermind or some sort of one of those people that are ahead of the game villain has some sort of sexual ambiguity because of that movie Mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense so the crying game is also from 1992 Mm -hmm. the crying game was a huge stinking deal back then oh yeah uh, because of one scene in particular so rough plot the ira that's irish republican army kidnaps a soldier and holds him for ransom he's watched by fergus a volunteer and soon develops a friendship with him the compound is shot up and the soldier dies and fergus gets away so he finds the soldier's girlfriend to apologize but instead they kind of start this relationship and then this moment comes do you remember the moment Uh, how can you forget this moment it was a big damn deal so so she the character his new girlfriend removes her robe and she's a man Mm -hmm. and we see full frame wang it's not like oh let me tell you this story i'm a man she just pulls off her robe and you see penis Penis. in screen and it was a really really big deal not only just to it was a surprise obviously but also to see a penis on the big screen in an r-rated film in 1992 was a very big deal right (laughs) she was not really like a psychopath in this she didn't end up killing miranda richardson character but it was kind of like yeah well you killed my guy now I have to kill you I'm not really a psychopath yeah it was just the biggest stinking deal she ended up so he Jay Davidson got nominated for best supporting actor Mm -hmm. that was a big deal because they were like which category do we put him in he is a man but he played a woman in most of the movie right it was kind of like the beginning of like transgender confusion of like what how do we start categorizing this yeah yeah it's really a great movie I actually haven't seen seen it probably in a while my guess is it holds up i don't know maybe it doesn't 
I imagine there's some early 90-isms in it that yeah. are kind of stand out. But those performances were solid enough that I think that at least that holds up. I think so, too. And you know, remember, Boy George did the song, the cover of oh, the, the Crying, Crying Game. Game. That's so he was kind of like in on it. It was a, kind of a big moment at the sure. time. Yeah. Remember the movie Heavenly Creatures from 1994? Can't forget that one. Yeah. So Heavenly Creatures was one of the earlier films of Peter Jackson and was actually the first film to star Kate Winslet. It was based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Tell us what happened. It was these two girls, and they became fast friends. They were really good friends, and their relationship developed way beyond that into where they were more than friends. They developed a you know an intimate relationship, but also they had gotten kind of nutty in their own little internal fantasy world. Fantasy world, yeah. When it got to the point where they were going to be separated, I think the parents got like, oh, we need to get them away from each other. They're creepy. They plotted to kill their parents, and they actually killed one of the girl's mothers. They were sentenced to never see each other again, and that's pretty much how the film ends. Yeah, and it's a true story. It is a true story. And you you know the woman's name. Well, what happened was, okay, so the movie came out, and it was a big deal on several levels. One, because Peter Jackson, before this, had made nothing but gore trash, which his old movies are amazing. But but they're so a polar opposite to what he does now and what he did with that movie. That was a big deal, you know, a big change. But also, it got a lot of good reviews. Reviews and it was very popular, very popular in New Zealand because I think it was one of the most famous New Zealand movie yep. at the time. And then it got a lot of accolades here. And what happened was, you know, people were wondering, okay, well, who are these people? Where are they? You know, if it's a true story, who are the actual girls that were in this movie? Turns out one of them was mystery novelist Anne Perry. Yeah. And it, during an interview when that came out, when it was discovered that that she was one of them, you know, they asked her, "Have you ever seen the other girl again?" And she was like, "No, they've never spoken again." Yeah. But so yeah, she killed someone. She like helped she murder murdered somebody. They put rocks in pantyhose and beat, beat head one of their moms to, to death. death. Yeah. It's crazy. It's fucking crazy. Crazy town. That was good. It's a yeah. great movie. And if you get a chance to watch it, really, I highly really recommend good it. Movie. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember the movie Color of Night from 1994? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up because yeah, we were just talking about this one. Yeah. I saw it in the theater. I mean, I was 14, so I must have snuck in to go see this movie in the theater. <laughs> yeah. And I remember it being like, I mean, this was the time and Basic Instinct was kind of like the start of that of mm-hmm. like sexy thriller. You know, sexy thrillers was like a big thing in, in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, I got to see if I, because I've only seen it one time and it was that time in the theater. This is Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. He's a psychiatrist. There's a murderer, and he starts sleeping with a girl. Right. And it ends up being the girl is the murderer, but she's posing as a boy. In his group session. In his group session. Mm -hmm. Right. So she's trans- playing transgender i guess i'm sure i don't even i mean like i don't remember like why she was doing this she was murdering either. people from the group was that it sure all i remember is that bruce willis has a penis scene in the pool yeah. there's a sex scene in the pool and you see his penis and it was a pretty big deal there's a lot of floating dong in the pool. yeah float yeah. yeah like floating to the top and dong. that actress was horrible <laughs> she, she was, was terrible jane march oh she's awful she was yeah really that. bad and the movie's terrible too but yeah it was so ridiculous they also like how you know they picked Jane March because I think she had kind of like a boyish frame but like in the group sessions I feel like so if you went to a group session at like a therapist's office would it be completely dark in there I think they had to turn the lights down so low to make her look like a boy but it was like I wouldn't want to go to a group session where I'm sitting in the dark with a bunch of people like (laughs) and I remember the way they made her a boy quote unquote is they put her hair up in a ball cap and like had a big jacket on her and then didn't put any makeup on her and like they were in the dark and they're like make it very 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 dark and yeah. it's like she's dressing as a boy he never saw this coming right you know, it's like he's on, like yeah. he must be the shittiest psychiatrist of all time right. he cannot tell that the person that he's having sex with is wearing a baseball cap and playing a different character in the, in the same group meeting yeah. real stinker <laughs> um do you remember the movie midnight in the garden of good and evil in 1997 yes i do that was also based on a true story mm-hmm. not that color of night was based on a true story i'm saying that <laughs> heavenly creatures is based on a, not the color of night that yeah, that's never based the on worst garbage true story ever if right. that were the case yeah. so so Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil was the true story about an older guy and then his younger gay lover. And the older guy killed the younger gay lover. Yeah. Right. A true story happened in Savannah, Georgia and kind of put Savannah, Georgia on the map. And then, as, uh, you know, it, Savannah, Georgia was kind of like a character in the movie. Right. And you've been there. I have too. Yeah. yeah well, and I went back this year for a friend's wedding. I mean, and we did ghost tours because, of course, you got to do that. I did it one when I was yeah. there too. You but have it, to. It, it's required. This movie and the story is very much of the Savannah lore. And yeah. And so, yeah, it really is, the story is just part of that overall legend now. And it's, yeah, Savannah's very much a character in the movie. Yeah. 
And in I remember book, it being a pretty good book and maybe not that great of a movie. Yeah, I don't think it was. A, I don't think it did it well as a, a movie. Clint Eastwood directed it, I believe. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Luckily, we've kind of turned a bit of a corner in the last decade and managed to do right by the LGBT community. Directors like Gus Van Sant, John Cameron Mitchell, Pedro Almodovar, Greg Araki. I'm not saying that only gay directors should tackle LGBT psychopaths. Right. But there is a bit more fairness when the issue isn't just for exploitation purposes like Dress to Kill. Sure. Just like a movie about black and Italian tension isn't as strong if it's directed by a white guy as opposed to somebody like Spike Lee. Sure. And once we have more voices, we have more representation. So I'm not trying to get too political, but take these past three movies, all of which involve LGBT psychopaths, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Mm -hmm. American Beauty, both from 1999, and Monster with Charlize Theron from 2003. Neither of these three Oscar nominees and winners pinned their premise on one bad guy character. There were multi-layered stories that featured LGBT characters. There's there's a difference, you Mm -hmm. know? So just to kind of start wrapping this up, the last movie I'm going to talk about is the 2015 film Stranger by the Lake. Okay. It's a French film with really only four characters and one location over the course of a week or so. Rough plotline, a guy named Franck starts going to a lake in France where gay guys and nudists go to swim and hook up. Nice. He starts to fall for a guy and one night he sees him drown his partner. Unable to control his attraction, he starts to get involved with the murderer. It's a perfect film, but if you aren't a gay guy, you might want to skip it. It has some pretty graphic gay sex. I mention this movie because it was critically acclaimed, embraced by the LGBT world, and yet was about a gay guy that wasn't smart enough to not get into a relationship with a murderer. Hmm. Not exactly the type of fare that the LGBT community feels properly, you know, represents them. Right. But here's my point to all of this, which I've kind of been swirling around for a while. LGBT people are just as fucked up as everybody else. Sure. We have our murderers, our psychopaths, and our multiple personalities, but just don't blame our LGBTness for those things. True. So just be like, oh, here's a murder mystery. And it's like, g- guess why he did it? He's gay. It's like, that's not good enough. Sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that's my episode on LGBT psychopaths. Yeah. I got a couple honorable mentions, but what do you think? Okay. No, it's great. Uh, I learned a lot. I mean, it's a fascinating topic. It really is. I tried not to get too political. I tried not to be like, I'm going to, you know, make this. Okay. The movies and the the topic speaks for itself. Yeah. All right. I agree. So here's a couple of honorable mentions. The detective in 1968 is Frank Sinatra investigating the death of a gay guy that was involved in all kinds of illegal shit. 1968? Frank Sinatra gay? What? How come we haven't heard more about this movie? I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. Remember Patricia Highsmith? Yes. She also wrote the book that the lesbian movie Carol was based on. Okay, yeah. And we saw that last year at the New York Film Festival. We did. I liked it very much. Yeah. It was a good movie. Carol. So Patricia Highsmith was really into this kind of class status thing. You remember Carol was very, very rich. She had money. And then the other girlfriend was was very poor. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, talented Mr. Ripley, that that was clearly clearly a thing. Uh, Patricia Highsmith is lesbian, too. Yeah. One of the best women in prison movies was Cage Heat from 1974 and was mm-hmm. directed by Jonathan Deming. Oh, who yeah. was Silence of the Lambs. And then the movie Skyfall from 2015, which I've never seen, but did What's-His-Name? Was he gay? It, it was implied. Uh-huh. Two things were implied. It was implied that he was either gay or bi, but also implied that James Bond was a little bi himself. Oh, really? Yeah. And of the latter James Bond films who have come out, and especially, I think, of the Daniel Craig ones, it's the best one. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. That's good. Well, that is pretty much what I got. You got anything that you want to add to it? No, you. you I think you've touched on, <laughs> on uh, everything. I don't know. There, there's, a, there's a joke in there somewhere. So I find that, I mean, I found this topic fascinating for a number of reasons. It's just really interesting to see the history of all these types of films and the reaction that, you know, the, the gay community had to it. And the straight community, too. Like, I, I'm curious how much these films affected, like, straight views on gays. Sure, sure. And I don't know what the neg- if there was a negative if it just was kind of a passive thing I'm, I don't know yeah, yeah I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it is, is that a lot of times in cases like this especially when dealing with films of, uh, of race or class or something like that right. at some point showing certain things just becomes out of fashion just something that you just don't do anymore right. and so one of the things that I like about this is that it's still okay to show LGBT psychopaths but you just have to kind of do it in a little bit of a different sense right. so it's not just like because it's 
sucks when things become too politically correct that you're like, man, I, I miss seeing these horrible things that we used to do. Yeah. And this is like one of those topics of where it's still okay to do it because you don't ever want to say like, no, you can't have a gay person that's a murderer. It's like, no, we can we can have our murderers too. It's totally fine. All right. Very interesting. Good episode. I, I had a gay old time. Oh, good. I'm really <laughs> glad. All right. Well, thanks. That was episode one of season three. We will be back next week where you'll do your. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll do my episode on parasites. Yeah. So exciting. Be here for it. All right. Thanks, thanks for guys. listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources, as well as Sunday Slum Day, our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. Gross movies.